This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, broadcasting strategies and inspiration that we can apply to our daily lives. On this episode, a listen back to more peace greats we've interviewed or put the spotlight on. Our Peace Greats Part 1 program featured Gandhi, Chavez Huerta, King, Mandela, and the Dalai Lama. This time, we'll mine our archive for conversations with or about just some of the other Nobel Peace Laureates, many still living and still working for peace. And we'll start with Mairead McGuire, the peace activist awarded the Nobel Prize in 1976 for her work with Betty Williams to promote a peaceful resolution of the conflict in Northern Ireland. She spoke with Carol Boss in 2006. I believe there's absolutely every possibility that we as the human family will evolve to the stage where we are building non-violent, non-killing societies. Um, and the human family, people are forever changing and we are learning so much today. Um, but the one thing that we do all know is that love, compassion, forgiveness, these things come from the heart of every single one of us. And we really just have to develop and water the seeds of love and forgiveness and believe that we have power as individuals. And particularly when we join together with other individuals with a vision of doing things in a peaceful and nonviolent way, we are powerful to bring about real change. The youth of today are crying out for a different world all over the world. Young people don't want to bring children into the world which is armed to the teeth of nuclear weapons, which is is using war as a method of solving its conflict. And I've travelled the world. I've been in Iraq. I've been most every area of the world. And what amazes me is that people are great. People are good. People want peace. But really what we have to do is commit ourselves and our lives and take risks for peace wherever we live. Do you ever get um, challenged at all by people who challenge the notion of talk about nonviolence and peacemaking? And, And this is in consideration of the many fears that people around the world and certainly in this country have about terrorism, for example. Well, you know... We, we need to, to work so that we don't have terrorism in the world. But the best way in which to do that is to uphold human rights and international laws and to build links right across the world with those people who are using alternatives to terrorism and nonviolent techniques, but to deal with the root causes of violence. And it's very important to ask the question, Why do young people um, use violence? I lived in Northern Ireland and I seen young people within my own community taking up the gun for the armed struggle uh, in Ireland. And I had to try to understand what possesses a young person to take a gun or to go on hunger strike to the death or to be a suicide bomber. Um, And what I came to realise is that We are each born with an innate sense of justice and human dignity. And when that justice is abused by states or governments and that human dignity is denied, when our basic civil rights to a right to food, a right to home, a right to our own country, um, 
when those things are taken away from us, then we get very, very angry. Uh, And what do we do with that anger? Uh, Because we must, in all consciousness, protest injustice. You cannot sit back and say, it doesn't matter, I'm doing nothing. But when you see injustice, be it poverty, abuse of human rights, be it invasion and occupation of your country, you must resist. But we have to learn the ways of nonviolent resistance because violence is always wrong. You know, armed uh, suicide bombing, that's wrong. But if we don't try to tackle the root causes of why people go to this extreme and all call for of despair, it's a call of despair, then I'm afraid we are not going to be able to solve these problems. You talk about um, the importance of teaching nonviolence at every level in our society. There are courses on conflict resolution, there's prejudice reduction. Um, How does this happen? How do we begin to do that? Do we begin to do that with our children? I want to hear your ideas about that. You know, if if we if we seriously want to change and become more peaceful and solve our conflicts without violence, I think we need to say, look, violence doesn't work. Nuclear weapons, war, old ways. Let's do another thing. So we start rebuilding, moving away from a culture of violence, which is everywhere in the world, and an increasing culture of violence, tragically, and we move away from that to looking at how we build this culture of nonviolence. Now, if we're to do this for the future, everyone has a role to play. The artists, the musicians, people will help us beautify life and make it a celebration thing. So we each ask, do what I do, do, does it enhance life? Does it make it more beautiful or does it destroy life? So each individual must use their conscience and choose whatever way they want to go. But we start with our children in our homes, teaching the way of peace, of reconciliation, of acceptance, of diversity. We live in a diverse world of recognizing that human life is sacred and that everyone has a right, the right to life and the right to, to a good life, of recognizing that people come from different faith traditions, they have different beliefs, and that's all right. You know, that we allow every person to follow their path, their religious path, whatever it may be. So in our educational system, which America in many instances is so good at beginning to do, interfaith, interculture um, uh, uh, traditions, so teaching children to accept diversity. So we all have to work at different levels. On a higher level at the universities, looking our political scientists, looking at nonviolence and taking it as a serious political science, as something that actually really works. In our faith traditions, are finding within our faith traditions the jewels of nonviolence and teaching them to our children. The Muslim faith, have a great history of nonviolence, the Islamic faith. So we mustn't demonize the Islamic faith. Uh, you know, I hear now about militant Islam. Well, we don't talk about when the troubles were on in Northern Ireland. We didn't talk about militant Christianity. We don't talk about militant Buddhism. You know, so we must recognize that the Islamic faith, that the Muslim people, have their own seeds of peace and nonviolence, and we are all brothers and sisters, and we must not feed the fear 
of the Islamic world because when you feed fear, um, then people begin to see others as enemies and demonize them, and that would be tragedy in our world today. 1976 Nobel Prize laureate Mairead McGuire with Carol Boss in 2006. The 2007 winners of the Nobel Peace Prize were climate change crusaders Al Gore and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. On Peace Talks Radio, we heard excerpts from the Nobel Prize acceptance speeches and talked with a climate change researcher who had explored how climate change can threaten world peace. First, Vajengla Pachawi of the IPCC, then Al Gore, then climate change researcher Dan Smith and University of Toronto Climate Studies professor Thomas Homer Dixon. Peace can be defined as security and the secure access to resources that are essential for living. A disruption in such access could prove disruptive of peace. In this regard, climate change will have several implications as numerous adverse impacts are expected for some populations in terms of access to clean water, access to sufficient food, stable health conditions, ecosystem resources, security of settlements. Indeed, there are many lessons in human history which provide adequate warning about the chaos and destruction that could take place if we remain guilty of myopic indifference to the progressive erosion and decline of nature's resources. It is time to make peace with the planet. We must quickly mobilize our civilization with the urgency and resolve that has previously been seen only when nations mobilized for war. They were calls upon the courage, generosity, and strength of entire peoples, citizens of every class and condition, who were ready to stand against the threat once asked to do so. Now comes the threat of climate crisis, a threat that is real, rising, imminent, and universal. Once again, it is the 11th hour. The penalties for ignoring this challenge are immense and growing, and at some near point would be unsustainable and unrecoverable. For now, we still have the power to choose our fate. And the remaining question is only this, have we the will to act vigorously and in time, or will we remain imprisoned by a dangerous illusion? There is an African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We need to go far, quickly. Former U.S. Vice President and climate crisis crusader Al Gore. We also heard from Vajengla Pachawi of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Excerpts from their Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speeches from December of 2007. Our host, Carol Boss, takes us into more conversation about this topic with Dan Smith, Secretary General of International Alert, an independent peace-building organization that works in over 20 countries to promote lasting peace and security in communities affected by violent conflict. Dan Smith is the author of the report, A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. Smith says understanding this link between the effects of climate change and world peace and security means understanding what he calls the consequences of consequences. Global warming, which is um, caused by uh, largely by uh, carbon emissions, leads to changes in weather patterns. And those changes in weather patterns mean then that there are consequences like uh, rising sea levels, melting uh, glaciers, 
rainy seasons, some places get longer, in some places there's less rainfall, the crop cycle gets shorter, and so on. And then as you follow through, all of those, the physical effects, have further consequences in the sense that they make uh, the lives of people harder. All the time we are tracing through the consequences of the consequences and trying to look at what are the risks which are being generated here. Because what we want to do is to say, well, how could, how could it be possible to intervene in order to reduce those risks and start um, breaking this chain of consequences of consequences and turn it in a different direction. Next, we visit with Thomas Homer Dixon, chair at the Trudeau Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Toronto. Do you have off the top of your head some ideas about how people can wrap their heads around some of these issues and do something in their lives? First of all, I think it's really important that people realize that climate change in particular, which I think is probably ultimately the most threatening environmental challenge human beings will ever face, that climate change is not just a matter of the temperature getting warmer outside. It's going to affect every aspect of our economies and societies and the way we live, and especially the lives of our children and our grandchildren, because the biggest impacts are going to manifest themselves later in this century. Uh, and, and it will have effects on not just quality of life, but on life, period. It's going to affect whether societies can actually maintain themselves as stable, coherent, productive enterprises. So that's the first thing that I think people need to realize. The second thing is that climate change is a, is a tractable problem. It's a problem we can solve. We have the technology, you know, like they used to say in the $6 million man. You know, it, it, we, can, we can do this. Uh, it's mostly about will. It's about m mobilization. It's about political leadership. And it's about action at the individual and community level. 50% of the climate change problem is going to be solved by things that people do in their households and in their communities. Individual changes that people make in how much energy they consume, what kind of technologies they use, what kind of lifestyles they lead. We don't have to sacrifice quality of life here, but we do have to change the way we live, uh, probably fairly significantly. And we can still be very, very happy, though. Uh, and that's stuff that can start right now. Uh, you know, people deride Al Gore when he talks about changing light bulbs. But the first step is changing a light bulb. There's a lot more that needs to be done, and a lot of it's going to be a lot harder than changing a light bulb. But the first thing you need to do is think about the simple things and the easy things, and then you can go on to the harder. And it's possible for everybody to do that. Some of it can be personal at the level of the household. Some of it can be in terms of our own lifestyle practices. And some of it can be in the level of our political, our political mobilization and and lobbying for changes in government policies, and in particular giving courageous political leaders who want to do the right thing the cover that they need, the support they need to go ahead and do it. Uh, and uh, and that, that happens one conversation, one conference, one letter to the editor, one article to a community newspaper, one dinner discussion at a time. Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon oversees the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. He spoke with our interviewer, Carol Boss. The first person of color to ever receive a Nobel Peace Prize was U.S. diplomat Ralph Johnson Bunch, who won the award in 1950 
for having arranged a ceasefire between Israelis and Arabs during the war which followed the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. We spotlighted him on Peace Talks Radio in 2007. These successful armistice negotiations have demonstrated conclusively the ability of the United Nations to mediate a serious conflict and to avert a dangerous threat to the peace. That's United Nations diplomat Ralph Bunch at the docks in New York, returning to the United States on boat after securing the first major Arab-Israeli armistice in 1949. A tireless proponent of human and civil rights, Bunch was instrumental in cooling down hot spots through negotiation and setting the world stage for the transformation from colonial rule to independence for nations in Africa and Asia. One historian said he was not only a role model for African Americans, but was also a role model for anyone and everyone when it comes to human relations. Well, I think that's absolutely true. Sir Brian Urquhart is a former Undersecretary of the United Nations, who worked with Ralph Bunch for 20 years until Bunch's death at the age of 67 in 1971. Uh, Ralph himself, though he was extremely proud of, of his African American background, uh, very much disliked the idea that he was the first American Negro to do this or that, or that he was in some way different from everybody else. He, he saw the whole human race as, as uh, not as brothers, but as people who deserved to be helped and whose problems uh, he, he wished to devote his life to. And that's what he did uh, pretty consistently, right from his relatively early days. Ralph Bunch, an outstanding athlete and scholar in school uh, at UCLA, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, and he delivers the class valedictory address at graduation. Even just in his 20s, uh, the words in the speech that he called the fourth dimension of personality seem to hold a lot of um, what will drive him throughout his entire life. Let me just read a little bit of this. It says, man learns and knows, but he does not do as well as he knows. This is his weakness. The future peace and harmony of the world are contingent upon the ability, yours and mine, to effect a remedy. This was really kind of a signpost for the rest of his days, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, Ralph, from, a, from an extraordinary early time, he realized the extraordinary gap between knowledge and actual performance, particularly in the political and diplomatic world. And he made it a, a rule that there was no human problem which which was not susceptible to some kind of improvement, no matter how long it took, which is one of the reasons why he was such a good negotiator. You talk about the importance of drafting in peace negotiations, something you said Bunch was especially uh, good at throughout his career. Can you elaborate on this and suggest what uh, what Bunch could do so well that is still crucial for negotiations of all kinds today? Or it will be. Well, my, my sort of vision of Ralph, who is, I think, the person I spent more hours with in my entire life than anybody else, uh, is of him hunched over a, a legal-sized pad with a whole supply of pencils and writing in longhand a whole number of things, mostly formulas to try to get around problems that had come up during the day. Ralph's great genius was to be able to listen all day to two or three or whatever it was, sized to a conflict. And then to in the night to write up 
a form of words which they could all accept, which would mean you could move forward. Of course, the great classic example of this was the armistice agreements between Israel and her five Arab neighbors, which he drafted and got and got agreed on in uh, 1949. He could uh, intuit in his own mind the problems and the fears and the difficulties of the people he was dealing with, not least the kind of reception they were, they were going to get when they went back home if they had given away too much. And he could get all that working with the objections they had made to some previous proposal. And he could reformulate that proposal in a way that would give everybody just enough leeway to get through. It's something that very few people can do. And it, to do it, you have to have, first of all, an enormously... Uh, acute uh, analytical minds, and secondly, a very great capacity for understanding the difficulties of other people. What you're talking about is a capacity for empathy as well. Absolutely. I mean, somebody once said that uh, one of the generals who Ralph employed in somewhere, I think in the Middle East, once said that Ralph had the kindest eyes that, that he'd ever seen. And I think it was true. He was, he was a person who really had an unusual appreciation and liking for his fellow human beings. And curiously enough, it's not necessarily a very common, uh, common quality. Uh, he, he really cared about the whole idea of helping people in trouble. And those were the people he was interested in. He was surprisingly little interested in very important people, celebrities, that kind of thing. He really didn't mind about them at all. But he was deeply interested in the lives of ordinary people and how you could improve them. Did he also have a skill for being present and, I would presume, an extraordinary skill at uh, listening? He was an incredibly good listener. In fact, I think it was uh, Moshe Dayan, who was at that time an up-and-coming general in the Israeli army, who once described during the armistice agreements, he said that uh, Bunch would sit there for hours uh, and just looking at the person who was speaking, absolutely unmoving, and you could somehow see the, the, this, this knowledge being received into some central area of his brain and being sort of filed accurately so that he could pull it out later on. And he was a very, very good listener. Sir Brian Urquhart wrote Ralph Bunch on American Life. More of our special Peace Greats Part 2 edition of Peace Talks Radio right after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast spotlighting peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com, including the first part of our two Peace Greats specials, which includes segments on the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, Mandela, Chavez and Huerta, and Martin Luther King Jr. We continue today with Peace Greats Part 2 with the 2010 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Liu Xiaobo, whose written critiques of the Chinese government landed him in prison many times, including the year he won the award. And as of this recording, he's still serving a sentence set to last to at least 2020. That's the voice of Liu Jiabo during a visit to Australia just before his 2009 arrest and imprisonment by the Chinese government. He was interviewed by reporter Liz Jackson for an Australian documentary program. But realistically, how many people in the huge population that China has know enough or care enough to speak out publicly for human rights and democracy now. Do you ever feel like that you're just a small minority that the government can afford to just contain or ignore? Liu Jiabo is saying, well, it's hard to say. In my case, I haven't stopped criticizing the government from the time I got out of prison in 1999 until now, which makes nine years. People keep saying, Jiabo, you'll be back inside soon, you'll be back inside soon. But it hasn't happened yet, has it? I think the government is under increasing pressure from ordinary people. If they arrest and sentence someone, they have to take into account the political cost, particularly with high-profile people. It's not true that the government can simply ignore us, that they don't care what we do. If they didn't care, then they would not go to such lengths to monitor and control us. I also sense that the community which empathizes with us, supports us, and is prepared to speak out for us is growing. Every year the numbers are increasing. My optimism about China is not something I judge by what the authorities are doing, but by what the growing power of ordinary people are doing. But we cannot expect things to change overnight in China. I think it's a very slow process. Within your lifetime? Well, maybe not, despite all my efforts for so long. As Tianqi Liao mentioned earlier, since his participation in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, Liu Xiaobo has written regularly to mark the anniversary of the massacre on June 4, 1989, of many hundreds of protesters by Chinese troops. Grey Wolf Press will release an English translation of those long poems, the June 4 elegies, in 2012. Poet and literary editor Jeffrey Young is working on those translations now, and he joins us from the offices of New Directions Publishers in New York. Welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. It's nice to uh, be here. What do you think Liu Jiabo's writing has to offer to the curious who would like to explore his work in terms of peace messages that they could apply to their own lives? What he's writing in his poems about memory and remembering this time and and how relevant it is today and how relevant memory is for us to progress as people you know that's already that's uh, you know an amazing message to 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 see through his life and his work but also all that he's been through he he's he's so much 
in different ways emphasizes the that he bears i mean he bears no hate he, the, the 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 famous speech he gave or the the words he he spoke at his trial um i have no enemies you know is basically everything that he's been through he doesn't harbor any hatred he understands kind of bigger picture of how things work and how the way power structure works and that hatred is one thing that is needs to be overcome if we're even going to be talking about peace well jeffrey young as we move toward conclusion could you read some excerpts from the june 4th elegies that you find especially compelling sure um so this is a um series of poems from june 4th elegies I cannot recognize the flag anymore, the flag like an unknowing child, flung upon mother's corpse, returns home wailing. I cannot tell day from night anymore, time's been petrified by gunshots, as if a paralytic without memory. Guns barrel braces my lower back, I've discarded my passport and identity card. In the bayonet and flame dawn, that once familiar world cannot find a handful of dirt to bury itself in. Red-bared heart collides with iron and steel, no water, no greenness of earth, duties ravaged sunlight. Well, Jeffrey Young, as a poet yourself, what impresses you most about the work you just read? I mean, trying to again put yourself in his shoes where he's in prison here and writing this it's almost beyond comprehension really i mean what he's writing about and so there there is this really sense of personal guilt too for him i think that he's expressing here there is of course anger too but you know again i don't see the hatred that so easily can you know can fall into Jeffrey Young is a poet and literary editor who is creating a translation of the June 4th Elegies, written by 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese teacher and poet who has been in prison since 2009 for his calls for reform in the Chinese government. He was unable to attend the Peace Prize ceremony himself. We resume our conversation now with Chinese writer Tianqi Liao, who, as we said earlier, never met Liu Xiaobo in person, but has had many conversations and email exchanges with him in between his many imprisonments. Tianqi Liao of the Independent Pen Center has been speaking to us from her home in Cologne, Germany. Even Liu Xiaobo has to be in prison for to serve the full sentence, 11 years, I think... He will accept that and uh, with peace and with pride. Um, he got what he deserves. The high honor, he knows that he has to pay the price too. Tianqin Yao of the Independent Chinese Pen Center talking about the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize laureate Liu Xiaobo, imprisoned poet and critic of the Chinese government. In 2011, I had the chance to talk with the 2008 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, former Finland President Marti Atasari, who won the award for his many diplomatic efforts around the globe, including in Africa, Northern Ireland, Kosovo, and Indonesia. 
and a man who evidently had a knack for negotiation for quite some time. My old friends, when I meet them, remind me nowadays that when, when I moved from another city in eastern Finland, in, actually it was an Olympic year, 1952, with my family. My father was in the military and we moved to the north, to Oulu. And I joined the local YMCA and played basketball over there. I was 15 at that time. Anytime we had quarrels, the fellows still remind me that I was the one who always said, come on now, what are you doing now? Let's, let's continue playing and, and stop this nonsense. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my mediations career, according to my friends. And perhaps the fundamental in my background actually is that I'm an eternally displaced person because when Soviet Union attacked my country, 400,000 of us who lived in Karelia, which we lost in that war, had to be resettled elsewhere in Finland. And that gave me an enormous sensitivity because I lived with my mother in a totally unknown farming community and family who took very good care of us. But you never forget that you were actually their guest. So you learn to be very observant. You observed what was going on. And I, I think those skills I found became extremely helpful. And I think it's good to, when you sit down with your, your friends or even your opponents, to try to find out what they really think, because they can put up a lot of facade, and, and when you learn to know them, you realize what issues are important and what are not. Right. You've said before that one of the things that uh, annoys you most is the tolerance of the international community for conflicts to become, as you say, frozen. Could you explain that term and, and tell me more about your resistance to that concept? Because if you look around in the world, we have, at least in, in Europe, frozen conflict, that's uh, Cyprus. We have in Asia, Kashmir. One could say that the Middle East conflict between Israel and Palestine is a frozen conflict. Uh, we are stuck also in places like Burma. There are a number of conflicts where international community, to my mind, is allowing these things to continue to be unsolved. And I think we should take a much more firm line in, in organizations like, like UN and in the Security Council so that we, we take a firm line and, and, and start pressing the parties to solve these conflicts because it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. When budgets at home in countries around the world are stretched so thin, uh, how do governments outside of conflicting nations uh, make a convincing case for interventions? You've called on the international community to be so much more involved. Uh, sometimes those interventions are extremely costly to their own economies. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you make that case? No, I, I, if we solve the conflicts, we save money. Because the prolongation of these conflicts is the one that costs the money. If you look at Middle East uh, and, and look, look at the last uh, few, few tens of years uh, and, and look at the whole region, it has cost much more than the recent financial crisis in, in, in the world. So 
you, you, we have to be. Sometimes we have to be tough with our friends as well because these issues have to be solved. I, 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 because if you let these problems simmer, and I, I take the Middle East crisis particularly, we will never have the Western democracies and, and the Arab world, we will never have a natural relationship. Secondly, I, I'm afraid that when, when we don't solve these problems, no one can guarantee the security of anybody in the region in the long run. So, so I, I think we have to be honest in analyzing these things. And, and I very strongly believe that, for instance, in the Middle East, majority on both sides wants peace. So, so we have to be better. Now, lately, we have had, I think, very encouraging developments. If, we, if I look, for instance, North Africa and what is, has been happening, happening in Tunis, in Egypt, for instance, and even in, in Libya, even if it's much more complicated. Those in the streets of these uh, countries, they have proven now fi finally to the whole world that the values they have been demanding for themselves are universal values. They are not Western values. Freedom to speak, all the human rights, they are universal values, as, as uh, many of us have been arguing all along. I know it's maybe a little hard to make this bridge, but if you had to pick some tips from your work as a mediator to summarize that our listeners might actually be able to apply to solving their own conflicts, what would you say? Uh, be honest with... You have to be an honest broker, not, not neutral. You have to be an honest broker that you really have to study the problem carefully I emphasize that you have to find the time to study what are the real issues. And you have to be very can candidly listening to, to the parties. But then you have to start talking candidly also. Sometimes we want to be so nice in these processes, as I said, that we are not moving these things, whether it's a private conflict or, or conflict between within states or between states, I think you have to address very candidly uh, both parties and, and, and be able to make them think that some of their positions are totally unjustified. And do it also in a manner that people are not feeling offended. I think the best compliment I, I got fr from an Eritrean, uh, we had become friends, he was an economist, was on a loan from the World, World Bank Group working there. And when I met him, and we were talking economic and humanitarian issues with his president and minister, he said, I would like to join you for a year to learn how to say difficult thing, things in a nice manner. That's the best compliment I have, I have had in my long career. Former Finnish president Marty Atasari who has worked to end conflicts in troubled spots around the world for more than three decades. He won the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize. We spoke to him in 2011 when he was visiting Chicago in the United States. And we'll have more of our Peace Greats Part 2 special today on Peace Talks Radio right after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today a special featuring some of our programs about and conversations with Nobel Peace Laureates, including Jody Williams, who won the award in 1997 for her work with the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. Ms. Williams talked with our Carol Boss during a visit to Santa Fe in 2007. I think we have to, you know, like, seize on what peace really is. Peace isn't wimpy. Peace is hot. Peace is sexy. Peace is hard work. There are a lot of cool, wonderful, hardworking people who work for a better world. So I read in an interview, I think somewhere online, about um, where you were talking about accepting responsibility of rethinking how we address the world's problems And if we go to the formation, if we start talking about the formation of the international campaign to ban Mm -hmm. landmines, from humble roots, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. a whole movement was born. Um, Where did that rethinking emerge from? I mean, in a sense, we, you know, we're held up as some sort of uh, quintessential model of government, civil society, partnership, bringing about change demonstrating that transnational civil society, you know, people across borders can come together, work collectively with governments to address the problems that face us all. And yes, we have been tremendously successful and we're a good model. But I was given a book relatively recently and it's called Bury the Chains. Have you ever read it? No. Adam Hochschild. He was actually one of the founders of Mother Jones. Yes. He also wrote King Leopold's Ghost, which I haven't read yet, but I have to. And Barry the Chains talks about one of the first recorded civil society movements, and it was to end the slave trade in the UK. And in the introduction, they talk about, you know, that that campaign, back before the US Civil War, used many of the same techniques that we use today. It just wasn't, you know, with the technology we have today. And to me, that was phenomenally inspiring, actually, to think about myself and the campaign to ban landmines and now the campaign to ban cluster bombs and we need a campaign to ban nukes. We're part of a chain. What would be an example of a a technique that is similar? Oh, they used, you know, brochures, pamphlets, just like we do today. The thing is, when we actually do a handout, we can also put it online so it's globally accessible. But they did the same kind of thing, went and talked to their, you know, the, what are, what are the parliament, parliamentarians. They found a parliament, you know, a parliamentarian who was their champion in the parliament. Same kinds of things that we did in the landmine campaign on the national levels, you know, to build the building blocks to make the campaign itself succeed. You think what really distinguishes the landmine campaign from others is that we got government so motivated that they were willing to reject traditional negotiating methods, which is, in my view, dictatorship by consensus. Because if, you know, a hundred governments are in a room and 99 of them agree they're going to ban nuclear weapons, and one says no, then the whole thing falls apart, because you have to have consensus. In negotiating the landmine treaty, after it failed within the UN, after two and a half years of trying, they stepped outside and they said, okay, we're not doing consensus. We're not negotiating in the UN. We're going to have standalone meetings in different parts of the world, and in that process, we're going to negotiate the treaty. 
And well, that's what we did. So what would you say was a, a, a very important thing that you learned in the building of the campaign? Oh, in all honesty, a couple of things. Um, that really, in a, in a global campaign like that, it is the work of the many that really allow the dedicated vision of a few to get the job done. The reality of it is, is that even in peace movements and NGOs, which are supposed to be more righteous than governments or whatever, there are a lot of blowhards who want to yap and don't really want to do the work. They want to tell you what should be done, but then they don't want to do anything. And in our campaign, you know, Tons of people were really involved, but there were a handful of us who worked every single day to make sure that all of that was translated into a coherent global strategy that resulted in the Mind Band Treaty. Another thing that I believe in is communication, 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 and more communication. If you don't talk amongst all of the elements of what you know, your NGO or your campaign or whatever, you're making you're diminishing the effectiveness of each and every one of them. Another thing is follow-up. If you tell a government you're going to do X, if they do Y, make damn sure you do X. Because they, come, they may not like you, but they trust you if they know that you will always do what you say you're going to do. Whether it's praise them if they join the ban or condemn them or whatever, they know what the consequences are. And that builds tr- trust mm-hmm. and respect, even if they don't like you. I think those two things are particularly important. In, in terms of um, advice or um, words of wisdom for folks who are listening to this, in, in terms of, um, in, sure. yes, engaging in, in Look, change. Look, one of the things that I, used, that I do that drove the peop- my you know, colleagues in Landmine campaign crazy when I would speak, when people would say, what can we do? My answer would not be join the campaign. My answer would be, I don't care what you do. I care that you care about something enough to do something about it, whether it's the environment, whether it's stopping nukes, whether it's cluster bombs, whether it's gender equality. I don't care what it is. But if you really care, volunteer some time. You know, you don't have to be a full-time activist to make a difference. I think that part of what happens in today's world is we're purposefully overwhelmed with all the, you know, gross things out there in the hope of turning us into Stepford citizens, automatons who think that we cannot make a difference in the world. So why bother? I totally disagree with that. Imagine if everybody of goodwill, in just in this country, volunteered one hour a month at some organization working on something they care about, whether it's community, it doesn't have to be international, all of it adds up to a different world. It doesn't take great drama to bring about change. All it means is getting up off your butt, finding an organization that's working on something you care about, and volunteer. 1997 Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams with Carol Boss. In 2006, the world's most high-profile peace honor went to a man who made it his mission to lift the world's poorest people out of poverty with modest loans made without collateral. Mohammed Yunus was a university professor whose microcredit initiatives led to the formation of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. For years, it has been reducing poverty and, as a result, promoting peace. Here are some of the Nobel Prize acceptance remarks of Mohammed Yunus. 
Peace is threatened by unjust economic, social, and political order, absence of democracy, environmental degradation, and absence of human rights. Poverty is the absence of all human rights. The frustrations, hostility, and anger generated by abject poverty cannot sustain peace in any society. For building stable peace, we must find ways to provide opportunities for people to live decent lives. The creation of opportunities for the majority of the people, the poor, is at the heart of the work that we have dedicated ourselves during the past 30 years. Today, Gamin Bank gives loans to nearly 7 million poor people. 97% of them are women in 73,000 villages of Bangladesh. Grameen Bank gives collateral-free income-generating loans, housing loans, student loans, and micro-enterprise loans to the poor families and offers them a host of attractive savings, pension funds, and insurance products for its members. On a Peace Talks radio episode, we talked more about microcredit with Coralie Bryant, a professor and author of the book Reducing Poverty, Building Peace. And this is Heidi Top Brooks, a global group leader with an anti-poverty grassroots organization called Results. There's something I'd really love to say about Muhammad Yunus and uh, Grameen Bank and what he discovered after running the Grameen Bank for about 10 years. Someone asked him, what's the first thing that people do when they start earning money after they take out a loan? And he said, the first thing people do is they buy their children back. And this shocks me when I hear it, except that it's in the news again. Children are still being sold into slavery by families who are too poor to feed them. And when you loan money to women, as Grameen Bank does, what they do is feed their children. And they send their children to school and they clothe their children. So... um, this this is a tremendous way of bringing uh, a, a certain kind of peace into the lives of the poorest of the poor, and it is desperately needed even today. Coralie, did you have a comment? I think that the point, the problem that he's pointing to is one that happens in a lot of places. In a way, he fundamentally, Eunice did a, f- a fabulous job, and the Grameen Bank is a fabulous job. It illustrates part of the point I made because one of the exciting and interesting things happening is that Grameen Bank is now working in this country. And that's part of this way of thinking about can we learn from what was effective in other places and apply it here to our own problems. We have had quite serious problems with banks that refuse to lend to to poor people in our own neighborhood saying the same thing. They're not creditworthy. What Eunice discovered was the ways in which they can be organized into small groups and face-to-face groups uh, can can help protect and be a surety for one another in terms of paying back the loans. And the repayment rates that Grameen has had is fabulous. This is a story about one of the early borrowers uh, from Bangladesh. And uh, she was being interviewed by the executive director of my organization, which is Results, Lynn Walker McMillan. 
And uh, the woman who was being interviewed through an interpreter uh, gently tapped on the arm of the interpreter and said, tell her that my son is starting university this year. So this is a woman who had taken out her first loan as a widowed, pregnant mother and bought a pair of geese. She bought geese. She had no home. She was living uh, in ditches on the side of the road. And from that, she was able to feed her children. This, this young man who was starting university is the child with whom she was pregnant at the time of her first loan. And by all rights, the child probably shouldn't even have survived. And yet now, in one generation, this young man is going to the university. So completely revolutionizing life for this family. Heidi Top Brooks and Coralie Bryant talking about the awarding of the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize to Mohammed Yunus and Grameen Bank for their microcredit work supporting peace in impoverished places around the world. We close our Peace Greats program today with part of my 2002 conversation with Jimmy Carter, the year he won the Nobel Peace Prize for the ongoing work of his Carter Foundation to eliminate disease and promote peace around the world. The Center's efforts to address hunger, uh, poor health, and oppression around the world obviously ring true to the humanitarian in each of us, but your books and talks make a connection between these desperate conditions and conflict and war in countries that can ultimately impact everyone on the globe. Could you talk about that a little bit and, and offer some examples? Well, one of the things that I've learned in the last <clears throat> 20 years since I left the White House, much more clearly than I did when I was president, is that there's no way to separate you know, a commitment to justice and peace and freedom and democracy and human rights and environmental equality and the alleviation of suffering. So that's why we have seen that in order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most uh, abject facets of life because quite often when people have no hope and no self-respect and no prospect for a bare existence, they tend to turn to anger and begin a, a civil war or lash out at their neighbors. So you, you can't separate the alleviation of suffering or environmental degradation where they lose their land and lose their streams from their inclination to despise their leaders or even to hate you know, distant success stories like in America. So they're all interrelated. That's the best basic point. I wonder if you could recount one or two personal moments that are etched in your mind as emblematic of the good that the Carter Center has been able to do over 20 years? Any faces or encounters kind of stand out? Well, a number of them. For instance, guinea worm is one of the most horrible diseases ever known on Earth. And when we started to eradicate guinea worm, and this has been the Carter Center, one of the Carter Center's projects, uh, we, we found 3.5 million cases in 22 countries, uh, about 23,000 villages. We've been in every one of those villages and taught the people what caused the disease, drinking filthy water, as a matter of fact, and, and how to correct it. And now we've cut that down from 3.5 million to about 70,000, which, as you can see, is a 98% reduction. And so to go into a village and see people, maybe two-thirds of a total population, unable to walk around, lying on, on, on the ground with guinea worms coming out of their bodies, and to teach them how to correct it and go back a year later, and there will be zero guinea worm. And those people, for the rest of their lives, will never see another case of guinea worm. So this is a very gratifying thing. One time I was riding in a big entourage 
or with the leaders of a, of a state in Nigeria. And there was a big sign on the side of the road that I'll always remember, held up by little school children. and said, watch out, guinea worms. Here comes Jimmy Carter. So, you know, that really is a kind of memorable thing that I remember. We've done the same thing with other diseases, including rubber blindness and trachoma that causes blindness. And so it's very uh, gratifying to me to go into those countries and see what a little bit of advice and a tiny bit of help will do to let them overcome their uh, terrible suffering. Well, and finally, you and Rosalind, as co-directors of the center, talk now about scaling back your active role. Is that a hard process for a couple of action people like you two? And, and what are your hopes for the ongoing future of the center then? Well, we've been doing that over a period of time anyway. Where I, I, Rosalind and I used to have to do everything at the Carter Center, <clears throat> you know, personnel, budgets, uh, planning, conferences, and everything else. Now yeah. other people do that for us. And we, for instance, in this hemisphere, we have 35 other presidents and prime ministers who have served like me in top positions who are part of the Carter Center uh, Council. And when I can't go to, say, Dominican Republic to help hold an honest election, I've got that array of other leaders in this hemisphere that can go and represent the Carter Center there. So it'll be a, a permanent organization. And uh, I think winning the Nobel Peace Prize for the work of the Carter Center, basically, is it, going to help strengthen that prospect for the future. President Jimmy Carter, thanks for your service to the world, and thanks for talking with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Good luck to you all. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, interviewed in 2002, the year he won the Nobel Peace Prize. You can hear this program again at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear and read about all the episodes in our series going back to 2002. Download audio, read transcripts, or even make a tax-deductible donation that helps keep this work going. Peace Talks Radio is produced by its own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that works separate and apart from your public radio station. Details on supporting it all at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Dave's Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.